Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 116. This is your host, Nicholas Eaton Clark, and this week we bring you a pair of dark fantasy tales from the Lovecraft-themed anthology Sword and Mythos, edited by Silvia Moreno-Garcia and Paul Stiles, and published by Innsmouth Free Press. We'll begin with a lovely story by Nelly Geraldine Garcia Rojas, translated into English by Miss Morina Garcia. Nelly is Mexican, but lives in the UK with her husband. Her stories have appeared in anthologies like The Apex Book of World SF3 and She Walks in Shadows. She can be found online via the links in our show notes. The story is read for us by Karen Bovenmeyer. Karen earned an MFA in Creative Writing, Popular Fiction from the University of Southern Maine in 2011. She has published approximately 25 poems, short stories and novellas and has a novel coming out next year. She teaches and mentors students at Iowa State University and serves as the non-fiction assistant editor of Escape Artists Mothership Zeta magazine. Karen's narrations can also be heard at Strange Horizons, Starship Sofa, Gallery of Curiosities, and Pseudopod. And now. In Sochitl, in Quicatl, in Shub, Nigarath, by Nelly Geraldine Garcia Rosas. Translated from the Spanish by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. These Tulucans, and by another name, Matlasinka, did not speak the Mexican language, but another, different, and obscure tongue. Fray Bernardino de Sahun, Historia General de las Cosas de la Nueva España. Screams the sun had not risen yet when the Mexica priests entered the valley of Toluca, carrying the effigies of their gods. They carried the whistles of death tied around their necks, small clay skulls that produced terrifying shrieks when they blew them. This is how they announced the arrival of war, and with it, of Huitzilopochtli and Tezcatlipoca, the lords that the Matlasinka would be forced to worship after being defeated by the Mexica. Shuti spat when she saw the procession coming closer. Those feathered puppets would never be her gods. Dawn came. The mist lifted like a ghost that received with cold claws those who wished to make war. The eagle and jaguar warriors would arrive the next day the rest of Exayacatl's army in a couple of more days. Shuti only needed one night. This one. So she walked without hurry, breathing the freezing air of the morning at the skirts of the volcano. 
Three days have passed since I touched Matlasinka soil, and I still do not know anything of the lost warriors. The people of these parts have a mysterious character and speak little to outsiders. Though I know their tongue, it is sometimes difficult for me to understand what they say. Their speech is cryptic. They communicate with subterfuges, mention one thing but means something else. The priests say that words created the world. Perhaps this place may hide something, like the obscure words that are spoken here. That must be why Exayacatl and Hui Tatoani decided to take over these lands. Sent by our ruler, other eagle warriors of my order came before me to study the battlefield and discover the weaknesses of the enemy. None returned. I came to the valley of Toluca to find my brothers and together prepare for war. Despite this, Exayacatl decided not to wait any longer. Soon, he will send the army. She began to climb. The cornfields had been left behind to give way to a coniferous forest where the fog seemed to be a prisoner impeding the passage of the sun. Shuti whispered something unintelligible, then undid one of the nets tied to her waist, extended it over the ground, and took a step, entering the woods. As she entered the forest, she asked Shinantikatl, the extinct volcano, if it would allow her to climb its side. She opened the cotton bag she carried over her shoulder and extracted a shapeless mass of flesh, blood, hair, and feathers, covered by a black snot. It squirmed. She placed it on the net that was lying on the ground. Then she took out a canteen of water, had a sip, spat on the creature, and drank the rest. The tequi tasted like fermented orange and left an echo of warm vomit in her throat. But it cheered her heart. Shuti smiled. Sinan Tekeli, whom others call Shinan Tekatl, naked lord, one of the nine lakes, husband, allow me once more to climb up your body and walk amongst your children. Aya! The air became thinner as she ascended, and the day grew shorter. Everything was dark in the forest, no matter the time of day. Shuti breathed without difficulty. She was used to walking among the trees and rocks of the volcano, searching for the favor of her gods. Her gods. Since she was a girl, she'd learned to love and fear them. She had spilled her blood and that of others, many times, so that the world would continue to exist. And, until now, they had never despised her offerings. There was a screech that interrupted her thoughts. An eagle flew above the thickets. She took it as a bad omen. We call them Matlasinka because they are capable weavers of nets. Not only do they use them to fish, but also in the harvest, in their clothing and abodes. This morning I found a group of children that played with an old net. The only girl picked one of her playmates to be enveloped by the net, then he was wrapped and squeezed while the other children screamed and sang words that made no sense. The mother, realizing I was watching, seemed to become angry and ordered the children to enter the house without giving an explanation. I remained for a moment, watching the place where they had been. Traces of saliva and tufts of hair remained as markers of a very strange game. They imitate what they see, a voice behind me said. An old, dirty man, with his hair knotted, clutched a wavering cane. He seemed morbidly thin. His gray and wrinkled skin was so cracked that it seemed as it would burst. He was drunk. You're not from here, I replied with a nod of my head. We don't like strangers snooping around our things. No, we don't like it. What were the children doing, I asked. 
I've told you. They imitate what they see. He approached me, stumbling. His breath smelled like a rotten corpse. Then he continued in a low voice. The girl. Did you see her eyes? Like obsidian blades. And the black hair. She's an apprentice of the night. Shuti, the priestess. The girl has been in the sanctuary. He went quiet. His eyes seemed to grow lost. The sanctuary? I say that in the ceremonial center of Shinantakato, magical things happen. I know. I saw them. I saw the wife. He said with a strange smile. He did not want to speak to me after that. The old man walked away, babbling to himself. When Shuti arrived at the limit of the forest, the sun began to hide towards the horizon. The sanctuary of the gods, barely protected by the trees, rose at the spot where the path that led to the crater of the volcano began. The hut, covered with nets, was decorated with deer legs and antlers. The scent of copal disguised the stench given off by the bloody organs spread over the floor and the walls. Shuti took a jar of takui from the great earthenware vessel in the middle of the hut. She poured it into a gourd and lit the fire. Small blue flames illuminated the ceremonial center. When almost all the alcohol had been consumed, the priestess blew out the fire and drank with closed eyes. She thought of all the ways the takui could move the heart. Then she washed her face, her arms, and legs. Aya! Shinnan tekato! Naked lord, husband, Aya, Shub Nigurath, black deer, wife, she said, raising her arms towards the sky. Someone whimpered in a corner. Insochitl, Inquicatl, Flower and Song. This way shall begin the poems that tell the feats of this war. No name shall be forgotten, no drop of blood spilled in vain, no sacrifice ignored. I woke to the whistles of death in the valley of Toluca. The shrieks sounded far away as if in a dream. I wished this was a dream. The sun was setting by the time I began to climb the side of Shinan Tecatl, seeking the sacred place of the Matlasinka and perhaps using their magic. I could find my eagle brothers. When night fell, I penetrated deep into a forest, where the air felt so thin that it was difficult to walk, and I had to slow down. Every time I stopped to rest, I could hear behind me, very close, the sounds of the hooves of a deer. However, the almost extinct moon and the tenuous light of the stars hardly allowed me to see anything a few feet from me. I climbed towards the top of the volcano, where perhaps I might find a path or some signal of the sanctuary. It was then that I stumbled onto an old hut covered with nets. A penetrating stench, like death, filled the place. I stood in the threshold of the hut. The ground was sticky and wet beneath my feet. Is there someone here? I asked cautiously. My answer was the whimpers of a man, followed by the steps of a deer. Then silence. Darkness. Nothing. An eagle flies above this cursed place. Huitzilopochtli has not forgotten us. Darkness crept over Shinnan Tecatl and all the valley of Toluca. In the ceremonial center, Shuti thought about pleasing the ones who would always be her gods to ensure the moon would rise again in the sky and the world would not cease to exist. Drink, she said, pressing the canteen of water against the lips of the eagle warrior. He struggled beneath the net that kept him captive and took a long sip. He coughed several times, arched his body, but stopped weeping. 
Thanks to your sacrifice tomorrow, the moon will rise and swell in the sky until the husband grows hungry again. Your blood will stop the world from being extinguished. You must feel joyous, Shuti said with a smile. Witch! cried the other eagle warrior, who was also being held prisoner. Wait, eagle man. Your offering will be well received by the gods. You will allow a greater good. Now drink. Again the hooves of a deer. Someone entered the hut when the shadows lengthened until they disappeared. A woman, the Matlasinka priestess. She lit a fire. The flames shone in her eyes as black as obsidian knives. Her head was shorn, except for a single lock of hair in the middle of the head that fell, reaching her hips, which were covered with nets that served as a dress. Beautiful and terrible, she blew until the flames died away. Then she gave a brink to my brother Eagle, and as though she were weaving a net, she must have cast a spell with her words because the warrior ceased to be afraid. Now he smiled with sickly stupidity. I refused to drink her strange potions. For a while nothing happened, until someone or something lifted the nets that held the warrior and began to twist them above his body with such strength that it broke his skin and fractured his bones. Blood and guts drained over the lattice that once held a man, forming a thick puddle. I could do nothing except tighten my mouth because of the pain and impotence. Aya, Shib Nigurath! Aya, Shib Nigurath! The black deer of the woods with a thousand young! The priestess screamed over and over again between spasms. Suddenly, the stars disappeared. There are no words to describe what I saw in the darkness. I do not believe the priests will ever be able to imagine it. A gigantic, amorphous mass appeared floating above us. It had innumerable eyes and mouths. From the black snot that oozed from the creature, the deformed legs and hooves of a deer emerged. The priestess screamed terrible words and danced over the blood and organs of the dead warrior. Her skin shone due to the sweat that plastered her long hair against her body. The great beast opened one of its mouths. It resembled a cave with hundreds of sharp little teeth and a black, pasty tongue which caressed the sorceress for a moment. Then it swallowed her with a single bite. Silence. The monster began to spasm. The hooves twisted. The mouths salivated. With a single violent motion, it expelled the figure of a woman. The sorceress seemed more beautiful and terrible than before. Her obsidian eyes shone like flames. The long, dark strand of hair grew long and thick. From her hips sprouted two thin legs that ended in black hooves. She seemed as tall as a Tlatoani. I heard the sound of innumerable deer galloping away. Shuti, the knight, smiled gravely. She walked slowly towards the eagle warrior and kicked him twice. Then she raised her arms and closed her hands into fists. The net that held the warrior began to twist and tighten until there was a crack and the blood flowed. The offspring of the wife neared slowly. They looked like trees that shook their fibrous arms. There came a bleating. Dawn was arriving. From the valley of Tuluka, the people were able to see how the entire forest descended from the volcano to battle the Mahikas. Shuti remained still in front of the threshold of the hut. She wondered how the poems that told the feats of this war 
would begin. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Warriors, blood sacrifices, and the great old ones. What more can one ask for? Special thanks to Karen for tackling the lingual gymnastics involved with mixing Aztec pronunciations with Lovecraftian jargon. As you may have noticed, I made no such attempt. Our next story is Sun Sorrow by Paul Jessup. When we contacted Paul for a bio, he politely informed us that he didn't actually exist. For more information regarding his non-existence, you can visit the link in our show notes. Sun Sorrow is read by Julie Day. An author as well as a narrator, Julie's fiction has appeared in such venues as Interzone, Podcastle and Resurrection House's anthology, Eight. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast program and a Master's of Science in Microbiology from the University of Massachusetts. Julie is also the host of the Small Beers Press podcast. You can find her online via the links in the show notes. And now, Sun Sorrow by Paul Jessup. One. And then Bela sat down under the lost arch and thought again of Carcosa and the hidden secret she'd searched for in its crowded temples and burning libraries. She picked up the rabbit head, deep in her own thoughts, staring into the dead eyes, wanting to forget, wanting to remember, perverse the way her mind worked. She rubbed the tips of the ears, pushing them back against the head, slick like hair. The oracle. She had found him. He was dead. But she had found him. She ran her hands over the fur of the rabbit head and felt the cool, glassy bone jutting out from where the neck used to be. She spun it in her hands, severed from the corpse that sat behind her. Large head, rabbit head, head as big as a human head, teeth of human teeth, placed in rabbit mouth, dead eyes staring at her. She was pressed between two alleys, and under the stained glass arch, the red sun above like a staring eye, dead man eye looking right at her, staring right at her. Do you know who I am? No response. She shook the head, hoping to revive it, hoping it would twitch its nose, move its whiskers. Nothing. Behind she heard the cause of the birds crying out and missed the red shores of Carcosa and wished she'd never left the cursed city and she thought again of the sleeping gods and the spiral towers 
and wanted to go back. But no, no, vanished. Answer me. Tell me what you know. Do you know who I am? What I've done? She lifted the skull right up to her lips, eyes staring at eyes. It did not smell. She expected it to smell. She saw glowing maggots in the eyes, eating away at them, devouring them and laying eggs. Can you give me redemption? Can you save me? Change me? I'm not my actions, am I? I'm something more than the things I've done. That has to be it. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a demon or a witch-eater. I'm a good person deep down inside. Can't you understand that? Can't you take this away? Clean me from the inside out? Wash these memories away? The smile was crooked, human teeth too big for rabbit mouth. She saw a grin at the corners of the lips and wondered if it was laughing at her. She felt like screaming and crying and pounding her fists, and she just didn't understand, couldn't understand at all. In life, the Lorex would have been able to do these things, been able to see her for who she really was and wipe her mistakes away. But the Loriax was dead. She let the skull drop to the ground. It rolled around, spinning with worm-eaten eyes glancing at her, weighing her with death. She turned, walked away, walked back into the city where the paper lanterns were just starting to glow and the red light of dusk was washing over the towers like a rag from a wound. Two. The city of a hundred fires. The city of the burning towers. The city of Xylos. The city of the dreaming dead. This was the city where others went to forget, to lose themselves amongst grand and simple pleasures. The city where the red flowers blossomed, on the alleyway corpses, and the air was filled with the light of glowing nightworms. This was a city whose name was etched at the first hours when the sun broke and the world started spinning toward decay and death. It was the first city of the new world, the dying world, the first city born in the age of constant death. They say that before the sun cracked, the world was filled with life, and everyone was expected to live forever. They say that before the sun cracked, the world was a place of constant wonder, of amazing things that were never seen again. They say all sorts of things about the world before death, but many discount it as the idle dreams and escapism, stories told to pacify the weak of spirit. 3. Bela ran her hands over the red clay walls as she walked, her head bent down and staring at the cobblestones beneath her feet. It was a pattern of red, white, red, black, red, gray. Maybe she should have kept the rabbit skull. Maybe it would have spoke to her, told her about her life, forgiven her for her mistakes. Maybe all it took was time for the oracle to shake off the cold hand of death and tell her what she desperately wanted to hear. The clay walls felt like bones under her hand. The red sun was gone now, set beneath the swollen crust of the world. Cold settled under her skin, and she kept herself from shivering by wrapping her arms around her shoulders and tried to keep warm. That was the curse of the broken sun. Hot, sweating daylight hours filled with moist fire and dark, cold blue nights that freeze and ice the skin. She had to find a place to sleep for the night before the cold really came in and she was like the many homeless dead on the city streets. Five. 
Where did Nims want to meet? She couldn't remember. Some part of her didn't want to remember. Remembering would bring back all the life she'd lived until now, and she didn't want to remember any of that. She fought against her nihilistic impulses and remembered briefly where she was supposed to meet him. The shrinking giant. A house. A grand old place near the edges of the city. With that memory followed another memory tagging along behind it, grabbing onto it and riding it up into her thoughts, climbing into her mind before she could forget it, make it go away or make it stop, clear, 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 like a bell ringing in her mind, so clear. Six. She remembered, shoving little face under the water, and it struggled, and she held it down, and it was flailing, and she pushed harder. She couldn't look down, couldn't look into the eyes. She wanted to stop existing. She wanted to stop being, but she couldn't. She had to keep on living, so she pushed it down harder, cramming the head against the rocks at the bottom of the lake. She was crying. She remembered that. Remembered her cheeks wet with tears, and she would lift the head up, thinking, no, no, I'll let you live. I love you so much. I'll let you live. And then she would see the face, wide eyes, and screaming and terrified, and she would shove it back down under the water again. And she was crying again, and the body was flailing again. Why couldn't she forget these things? If only it had been the wants. Seven. Mims. Raven hair piled up on head. Stick-thin body. Low-lidded, sleepy-eyed. Nose like bird beak. Lips plump and crooked in a constant sarcastic grin. He rolled dice in his hands when he was nervous and cheated at cards whenever they stopped for a drink. He had nightmares of snakes devouring him and he had known Bela since they were young and lived up in the far north and dreamt of Carcosa together. He knew of her memories and didn't care. He didn't believe in absolution and didn't believe in the concept of the soul or a spirit. He believed in finite existences, human beings like fireflies, our lights going out all too fast. He knew she would probably kill the oracle. His cards told him as much earlier in the day. The oracle was meant to die, and we was waiting to die. Bela just happened to be the one who killed him each time, each repetition of the action creating a greater weight around their necks. Today, his body felt so heavy, and he knew, he knew, it was all about to repeat again. Bela did not like this place. It had too many doors, too many windows, too many floors, and too many eyes. It seemed empty, but there was always someone, somewhere, walking, and if you listened closely, you heard the voices of people talking in next rooms over, but there was never anyone there. It was a dream house, a house built on the ghosts of another time, built on the memories of a world before the cracked sun. Nine. Mims was in the center of the room. Table, cards on the table, face up. He had his head down and was not even remotely looking at the cards. Bela knew these cards, and she knew that they were used to predict the future. One had a wolf swallowing the moon, and another had a nude woman riding a lion to war. The third and final card had a sword on fire on a field of stars. Bela knew, just looking at the way they were laid out on the table, that Mims was trying to predict the future again. He looked up at her as she walked in, his eyes not going up, not reaching her eyes, avoiding her stare, 
her guilty stare. As he watched, he grinned his own grin, and Bela was reminded of the rabbit grin, the skull grin, the too-big-for-mouth-teeth grin. We need to go back, she said. Mims picked up the cards, put them back in his pocket. The room was trashed. It looked like he destroyed it the night before, with chairs smashed on the floor, splinters rolling, bed chopped in half with his axe, broken wine bottles spinning, windows smashed, stained glass on the ground pointing up like daggers. He rubbed his hands over his eyes, looked at her. We can't go back, Bela. You know this. She calmed her nerves by running her fingers along the pommel of her sword. Sun sorrow. The ancient dreaming sword stuck at the heart of the glass god sea. It was hot under her hands, and she thought it was breathing and alive, and it too missed Carcosa of all places. It too recognized it was the heart home and longed to go back. There has to be a way. They can't keep us out. They don't have the right. He tilted back on the last chair in the room and stared at the ceiling, his eyes closed and his mind deep in thought. He drummed his hands on the table, humming to himself. Bela watched all this with a calm, detached interest, like watching a machine slowly calculate the center of the universe. This isn't just another mark, right? We can't just waltz in there. Even if we had a back door to the place, they'd recognize you right away. She pulled a dagger from her boot and threw it at the table, and it struck there and stood still, vibrating with a sharp note. She barely moved. Mims pulled the dagger out of the wood, rolled it around in his hand, and looked at her, stared right through her like she wasn't even there. Your existence is my death. Ten. Before. When they first arrived in Xylos, their ship was on fire. The crew ran around screaming. People had flames on their backs, spread like wings, ready to take flight. It smelled like burning meat, like burning hair, like burning wood and cinder and ash and decay. Bela thought about the children of the crew on board, and something inside of her curled up and died. So she howled and threw stuff and tried to put it out, but eventually grabbed Sun Sorrow and ran over and jumped into the sea and watched from the clear blue waves as it burned. The air was so hot with fire, and the sea was cold, ice cold. Daggers of cold brushed against her skin. She heard the screams and the shouts and wondered when it would stop. The masts crumbled and burst and made noises like thunder, and she gulped for air as she swam away, towards the bay where people stood still and watched wearing animal masks. Fish brushed against her legs. There went everything. All of their belongings burnt to a crisp, money melting into gold pools, loose gunpowder exploding and sounding like giants stepping on the earth. Even all of the memories of Carcosa curling and black with ash, blowing and billowing towards the city. The heat from the flames was too much to bear, even from back here. She felt her skin was burning like parchment, curling up and ashen. She wanted to disappear, to blow away, to drift towards town like a stray scroll unraveled. Now. Clack, clack. Clack. Mims rolls the dice on the floor. He watched the etched bones spinning, his palm itching, his mind racing. He was trying to pay off their debt and to pay off their room for the past few days. They had no money, no possessions, not a single thing they could offer in trade that they were willing to give. Bela stood over the moving dice and watched them rattle and crossed her fingers and thought that she didn't want violence. Not now. 
not just yet. Violence was always there. That she knew. But for once, just for a little bit, she wanted to be freed of it. The innkeep was a man with a fish's head, and he watched with black fish eyes, wanting to see if he would get double what he'd owed, or if he'd be out of everything. His fish eyes dilated, his gills struggling to breathe the air. The dice stopped, crisp and sure, revealing. A skull and a sword. Well, then, looks like you owe me quite a bit of money now, don't you? I suggest you two pay up nice and proper. We don't want to get the law here, do we? Bela laughed, and it was a hideous sound. It looked like she'd have to kill him after all. Sun sorrow stirred in her hands, stretching and waking and yawning. It glowed rust orange in the dim light of the inn, the whispering shadows shying away from it. She walked forward, sword hungry, sword wanting, sword breathing and blood starved. The fishman blinked at her, looked back at Mims and sighed. Go on, get out, you thieves. And you best run once you do get. You best run. I'll have the red and gray in here as fast as I can, and they'll be hot on your tail. Mims didn't say anything. He scooped up his dice, slung them into his pocket. He then glanced outside, towards the glittering street. Bela slid her sword back into her sheath, and it fell back into endless sleep. And it dreamed of wars and fighting and violence. And it dreamed of cutting the heads off kings and drinking their blood through its steel blade. They turned and they left, and the fishman stared, his head tracking them, following them, unable to stop glaring at them. His eyes were like two glass marbles, rolling towards them, watching them, like he was forcing their features onto his memories forcing them to engrave themselves deep within his mind. Twelve. A memory. Bela. Child Bela. Bela running and hiding in shadow-coated streets. Bela with black hair behind her, braided and flying. Bela wearing oversized fur coat since it was the month-long night, the snowless winter, the middle of summer that brought out the cold and the howling wolves crawling through the streets. Her mother was back in the tower, caring after ghosts that thought they were still dying, and her father was hung upside down in front of the gates, slowly begging for food, punished for killing four men with his own bare hands. She saw him now, saw him hung by his feet, saw his face, red, bright red, with blood, and his hands swollen and swinging. He laughed as he swung, and she saw his lips were cracked and bleeding, and his eyes were oozing. She looked up at her father, and reached her hand up, and he smiled down at her, cracked lip smile. Around his neck were rabbit bones hooked into a necklace, with rabbit skull as the center jewel. Dad! Daddy! <sighs> muttering, chanting, barely words. Yet his hand reached hers, and they held it for a moment, a moment too long, and the guards walked over and poked her away with their long spears. She looked at them crossed, and then smiled up at her dad and told him she'd get him out of this. She would. She would come and save him, and the guards laughed at her for being so small. Later, she would find an ice bridge in the sea and walk across it to a castle that grew in the middle, and she would find in the center of it, deep in the center heart, cold and godless and waiting for her, she would find her sword, the sleeping, the dreaming, sun sorrow. Next day, and the month-long night faded away, and the ice bridge melted, and everything was hot and burning in the light of the cracked red sun. 
she found her father dead and naked and vulture-pecked. They'd slit his throat in the night and stole his clothes and belongings. She went and found the guards from the night before, and she woke sun-sorrow from his century-long slumber. Death came so easy to her then. It was so much more difficult now. Thirteen. Sometimes she dreamt of her dad and woke up to a feeling so lost and empty and stolen. Like somewhere along her life, a piece of her broke. A piece of her childhood, maybe. A piece of her memories. Her soul. Something forgotten, lost and left in that ice castle so many years ago. And when she woke, she felt that if she could walk backwards in time and find that broken piece and put it back together then, well, then everything would right itself, and she would be good and happy and no longer shattered inside. She'd hoped to find that in Carcosa. Instead, she found only masks and more masks. Thirteen. The road was the road of old roads, the oldest of the roads known from before the time of the cracked sun. It stretched across the known world and was as wide as five people standing shoulder to shoulder. It was gray, cracked, and yellow lines dashed in the center of it, darting off into infinity. Monks would walk the yellow lines, making the pilgrimage from Yardoza east to the Mazag Gardens along the western shores. They prayed as they walked, head bowed and shaved and sun-blistered, hands working long beads between stick-thin fingers, their mouths low and chanting. This was the road they traveled, the oldest road, the road that led from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. At night it was lit by the lanterns of the dead, where ages ago the king in Yilo walked the road, and hung anyone he found walking there from iron posts he carried with him on a satchel slung over his back. After the bodies became dry and dead and dust, the light that they held within them crawled out and was trapped by the lanterns above. And now at night, every night, they turned on after dusk, glowing an eerie bluish-white, and whispering of the lives they once lived. Fourteen. That innkeeper was strange. Bela was in the front of the line, Mims right behind her, monks chanting right behind him, like an arrow pointing backwards towards the sea and the islands of Carcosa. Mims scratched his head, looked towards the red sky, and made thoughtful sounds, sounds of wondering, of humming and hawing, and oh yes, of course. Then he said, How was he strange? Because he let us go? I think he feared for his life, and didn't consider four shillings worth dying over. No, no, I don't think that's it. She stopped, and the monks kept walking. They would always keep walking. His head, I mean, what, a fish's head? Is he a mutant? Under a curse? I don't understand. Is he a living metaphor? A realization? A symbol? A sign from the gods? What does it mean? Mims looked at her for a moment, rolling his dice in his palm, weighing her, trying to see if she was pulling his leg or not. You do know it was a mask, right? Bela stopped, stood still, looking towards the edges of the road, towards the horizon, where some sort of future waited for them. She was always amazed at the idea of a future, of a place and time other than now, when she was still existing. She thought about that future, and it felt like the past, like it had already come and gone and left her. And now she wasn't in the middle looking towards tomorrow. She was in the middle looking towards the history.
Even this conversation felt worn and old, heavy with repetition. That couldn't have been a mask. He had gills, and the eyes blinked, and the lips moved when he talked. Masks don't move like that. They are still, motionless. Mim started walking forward again, hoping Bela would follow. She didn't. It was as if she was frozen in that second, hung still, a pendulum between not the future and the past, but rather between two pasts that have already happened. It was a mask. Didn't you notice the parades, the carnival, the dancing and the lights? Were you so caught up with your quest for the Loriax that you completely ignored your surroundings? The festival of the whispering red wind. It's what the Xylos is known for. That and cheap entertainment, if you know what I mean. She ran up, grabbed him by the shoulder, and she stared into his eyes, feeling this moment, existing completely in this moment. She wanted so badly to be anchored to this moment, anchored and real, and she wanted to crawl inside of it, to dig deep down with her fingers pushing against the membranes of the moment, and to lay a nest and live right here and now, no longer swinging through time, but still, still. Her eyes were manic, wide, desperate. She felt like she was repeating everything again. It wasn't a mask. He was real. I saw him. Mims pushed her hand away, shook his head, walked further along. It was a mask. Your memory is fooling you. A mask. Nothing more. Nothing less. A complicated clockwork mask, maybe. Like a puppet, in a way. But a mask, nonetheless. Fifteen. Later, hours later, and red foxes paced on the road, about ten all told, starved thin with eyes like wild lightning. The monks didn't stand a chance. They fought and prayed and chanted, and their spirits heard some prayers and not others, and ripped the foxes apart, but not others, and the road was covered in red, and the bodies were chewed through and bone-broken. Fox corpses and monk corpses and praying hands tilted upwards. None of them survived on either side. Bela had watched, calmly, from a short distance away. Her sword woke to the sound of the violence and begged her to go out and join it and fight and relish in it. She knew that the sword would not tell fox from man, and she did not want the blood of the monks on her hands. So she turned and did not watch, and just looked back towards the silver mountains. Mims ran forward and joined in, and was bit in several places, and had a claw scratch right over his eye. It would scar. That was sure. And there was blood soaking his shirt and his hair. But he had this wild, joyful look on his face, smiling and laughing as he used his axe to chop. He pulled back and walked toward Bela when the monks summoned the spirits. He did not want to be a part of that. The spirits were angry things, and Mims led a shit of a life, and he knew they wouldn't spare him any more than they'd spare the foxes. And so they both stood with their backs turned and waited for the sounds of violence to finally ebb out and flow away, gently, towards oblivion. 16. The spirits summoned. Gold and blue and glory-coated. Silver hair like fire on head. Skull-faced and angry with bodies like mist and dust and ash. Razor fingers reaching through flesh and pulling apart from the inside. Teeth for tearing. Tongues for tasting the living. The still-breathing. The unworshipped. When all was dead, they were sated and appeased. The sacrifices pleased them, and they walked off the road, trailing into the twisted, petrified trees, 
essences disappearing behind the stone echoes of plants and vegetables. 17. A Memory At the new town, the sea town, the town they lived in after their old home had turned to rust and poison, and the locusts came and devoured all light and all clouds, they were strangers here at first, at first. Strange people, other people, and they were not used to the sweaty bare backs on the long ships, the nets slung in the air and sparkling in the sun, the spears sharp and thrown and pulled back with swordfish stabbed. They were outsiders here, her and Mims, refugees, wanderers, forbidden. They were not used to the small mud huts, and they were not used to the spiny-backed crabs that people there rode like horses through the sand and the orange wastes. Everything was different. Everything was changed. This is the memory, here, right after they arrived. Bela went down with Mims to the beach. They were older now, old enough still that he yearned and she pushed away. The memory of her father's corpse still clear in her mind from the last city, the locust-eaten city. Bela went and stripped and lay flat on the beach while the harpoon seared the sky, and she saw millions of fish, all different colors swimming in the waves. The waves crushed and washed over her, over and over again, and she lay there, just lay there, and let the sea take her in, drag her in, pull her in. And there, beneath the waves, floating, floating, she was breathless and free, with the countless fish moving around her, dancing against her skin, and she felt herself being pulled further and further down, and there, right there, far under the sea, at the center of the sea, at the heart of the world, she saw Carcosa, sparkling city, purple towers glittering, not a ruin, no, no. It had a bubble around it, air bubble, and she saw tall men and women in elaborate masks wandering around in beautiful robes, robes covered in diamonds and jewels, rising up and out of their bodies like cathedrals of fabric. She opened her mouth in awe and swallowed water and laughed. She wanted to swim closer, closer, but it was too late. She was tangled, caught up in a silver web strangling. She was pulled now, pulled up and closer to shore, and there her fish friends were caught as well, and she could breathe again and she could hear Mims sobbing at the beach, worried that she'd been captured and taken by the sea. But no, it wasn't the sea that caught her, but the fishermen, who laughed and joked about it later, and said that they'd caught a beautiful fish that was trapped in the body of a little girl. We love Paul's imagery in this tale. It's reminiscent of some of H.P. Lovecraft's influences, namely William Hope Hodgson, Robert W. Chambers and Ambrose Bierce. A quick reminder, dear listeners, our current submissions period concludes at the end of the month. Visit the submissions page on our website for details. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you cannot change it and you really cannot sell it. And please be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be forced to listen to the audiobook edition of the Necronomicon. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. That's all for me for this week. I'll see you all next week. I'm off to make a nice cool beverage for this hot summer's day. Bye now.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.